Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Development Hell. every horror movie to hit VOD, there are countless others that end up D-O-A. Development Hell is a podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I'm a filmmaker located in Toronto, Canada. Development Hell is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Today's episode is going to be focused on the unrealized 2015 Hellraiser reboot at Dimension Films. We are lucky enough to score an interview with Hollywood screenwriter Teddy Tenenbaum. Teddy was hired by Dimension officially to be the writer for the Hellraiser reboot that never actually came to be. We talked to Teddy about some of his crazier Hollywood experiences, why the film didn't get made, what it was like being pitted against Clive Barker himself, and the bonkers plot behind his very cool-sounding Hellraiser reboot that was going to take things in a very different direction. Uh, hold on to your layman configuration, because we're about to dig deep into the Hellraiser reboot with Teddy Tenenbaum. Also, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Sure. I never get to talk about Hellraiser, so. Oh, wow. Really? What, your, yeah. your family doesn't allow you to talk about Hellraiser? I don't think anybody in my family and my close group of writer friends cares enough about Hellraiser, frankly. Wow, that's, so. <laughs> that's tragic. Yeah, yeah you know what? Actually, I would say the same. Yeah, that's <laughs> and that's actually kind of the truth of um, of being a screenwriter is that, you know, if you your movie – you're doing a lot of development. And if for the projects that don't get made, no one ever sees them. No one ever hears about them. They mm. kind of languish in, you know, on your hard drive. Could you introduce yourself to our audience today? Yes. My name is Teddy Tenenbaum and I'm a screenwriter and uh, now director uh, living in Los Angeles. How did you get into screenwriting and film to begin with? 
out. I knew that I wanted to pursue it in college. Um, I did not get into my film school of choice, which was UCLA. Mm -hmm. So instead, while I was studying anthropology there, I just kind of knocked on doors around Hollywood, got a couple of jobs as a writer's assistant. Uh, so I worked on a number of sitcoms uh, and some dramas as a writer's assistant while writing scripts that I hoped would get me an agent someday. And eventually it did, turned into uh, a lot of meetings that uh, went nowhere mm -hmm. and a couple that turned into jobs. And for a long time, most of my career was based not on selling original concepts, but by adapting ideas and intellectual property that was already owned by various studios. So that's what I've been doing most of the time. But along the way, I have also sold a few uh, spec scripts and original ideas in Hollywood. You know, only about 10% of what gets bought actually gets made. So you write a lot and see only a little made, unless you reach the kind of stratosphere of writers in which case you're doing a lot of work on projects that are already have a lot of money in them. So mm -hmm. it's very hard for a studio to not proceed with them. So a lot of the A-list writers, and they're also great. Uh, so they write great scripts. And um, those guys tend to have a much better ratio, probably 50 to 60%. Can you tell us about any of like the early sitcom projects? Is there anything we might like know the names of? <laughs> I, I worked on Ellen DeGeneres' sitcom. Oh, uh, get out. For, yeah. So that was, and it was, before, it was fun because it was before she came out publicly and that was always the plan strategizing that for uh -huh. a season or two before it was actually written that's historic uh, i'm a i'm it a was, queer yeah. guy myself and yeah that that that's a huge moment in queer history not not a happy moment unfortunately but it was hard for her yeah i mean we we i guess we were insulated because in hollywood mm -hmm. you know it's always mm -hmm. been much better um except for actors which where it's always been terrible in terms of their work that they can get we were so excited. It was it was a momentous occasion. I think we were very optimistic. And um, I can't speak for Ellen. I think she was too. That was the sense that I got. And, um, and I think it was very frustrating and disappointing when there was so much backlash. But at the same time, People knew right then how momentous it was and how historic it was. And the writers of that episode won an Emmy for that. Oh, uh, really? And um, so I think that it was a mix. It was bittersweet. Um, but it's great to see how far, at least how far Hollywood has come mm -hmm. since then. And actually, I think how far America has come. Um, and I have to give a, you know, a ton of credit to Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah, for, and as far as Ellen has come as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because she always wanted to do a talk show. She oh, really? used to talk about that back then. She wanted to be, she, I mean, part of, part of the, I know this is off topic, but mm -hmm. <laughs> um, she, her, I think one of her idols was on the other side, it was on the comedy side was Lucille Ball. And I, oh. I think the writers tried to work a lot of that kind of physical humor into the show and she was brilliant. She always wanted to do a talk show. And so it was really. I have been stalking you a little bit online and uh, I kind of know the answer to this, but I was wondering if you could talk about what you're working on now. And um, if we could get into Koreatown Ghost Story a little bit. After years and years of writing things and then looking for directors, whether that's whether it was a, a project that a studio owned, and after I wrote my draft, they would go try to find a director who they liked for the project, or writing projects on my own and looking for directors uh, to attach themselves. Uh, 
I, I think my writing partner and I, who I'll, I'll talk about in a second, um, we just got incredibly frustrated with that process. And the truth is that I always wanted to, and it's the oldest cliche in Hollywood, but I always wanted to direct. Uh, that's actually the reason I started writing so that I could write and hopefully someday direct. And I just got lazy, frankly. Um, I, I just enjoyed being at home and writing rather than, I know I, I, on, I wrote on a television show for a while and I was on set for a lot of the episodes, not just mine. I was kind of the official set, right? Unofficial set writer for the show. And um, the hours are long and arduous and everybody in the crew works incredibly hard. And I kind of liked being a writer and, um, you know, setting my own hours. Uh, so I, I kind of put that aside for a long time. And then um, my wife and I, uh, my wife is a writer too and has been for as long as we've been together, but she, we've written separately. So we finally, a few years ago, decided to, we had made some attempts to write together in the past. And we, uh, we had luck uh, a few years ago where we wrote... Uh, an idea of hers together that we sold to Sony. And um, we decided to that we wanted to kind of take control of our own destiny. So we started practicing filming shorts. We uh, made a couple of small ones. And then uh, we, um, we had this idea we really wanted to make into a feature film. So we wrote the script and attracted Margaret Cho, the legend mm -hmm. uh, and one of my heroes and one of my wife's heroes. Uh, to executive produce it and star in it. And so we are just now entering festivals with it. And it's a horror film. Mm -hmm. uh, we were in nine festivals. The first nine that we've heard from got accepted. So a couple of these festivals are, you know, festivals that I've loved forever. The Grim Fest in, in England is this uh, amazing festival. Yeah. Yeah. Very excited about that. Panic Fest. Uh, Panic Fest is, I, I can't wait to talk about it because um, a film of mine went to Panic Fest last year. Oh, that's awesome. And, and it's just such a, they're just so cool and great to their filmmakers and they, they show such exciting stuff. Yeah. I, I'm, we're so amazed and honored to be surrounded by all these amazing filmmakers and films uh, mm -hmm. it, you know, makes us feel really good about ours. Uh, unfortunately we can't go, uh, this I know, year, but, I know. Uh, and I guess you couldn't go last year cause they're probably we, didn't have it in person. I, you know, what's funny. It was at the end of our run oh, right? and we didn't go because we'd just been to so many and we really should have cause it was right before the world ended. That's what I remember hearing that they were like the last festival. They were. Festival. Yeah. I really regret not going actually. Make One another day. short, go next year. Uh, absolutely. Well, yeah. So, so easy. Just get a short. Out there. <laughs> yeah. So easy to make a short that's going to be accepted into one of the best. Uh, horror best <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not a Gen Z. I can't just take out my iPhone and make a short. It's not <laughs> yeah. that easy for me. Right. But you know, it's an amazing festival. Did you see you got into all nine that you've heard from so far? Yeah. So far, we're oh, really excited. God. That's, uh, that's so obnoxious, actually. I, you know, I, our last short didn't do anything like that. So okay. I'm kind of okay. reveling in that now. Our last short was, you know, 25% or something like that. Mm. Well, I hope that you get continue to get into the rest of them. I'm sure you have a bunch of like prestige ones that you still haven't heard from yet. Yeah, we haven't heard. The only two that, that we got into in time or that we were able to submit in time to before they their deadlines that are that well-known in terms of Horror Fest were the two that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. I guess there are some coming up, but we've also just started getting into, we just got into Cam Fest, C-A-A-M Fest, which is... Uh, the one of the I think it's the biggest Asian American festival in the country, and our um, subject matter is uh, a Korean American story. The actors are Asian American. Um, the co-director, co-writer is Korean American. Half of our crew is Asian American, so we're cool. really excited about that. 
all I know is the title and I'm already spooked. <laughs> so am I allowed to know anything about like the the plot? Sure. Um, so it's based on this ritual that is sometimes practiced uh, in Asian families, uh, Korean American families. Um, sometimes um, we know that it's practiced in some Chinese American um, families as well. Um, and it actually comes from a true story that um, my wife had a cousin uh, who was older than her. And when my wife was young, this cousin who was, she was only in her twenties at the time, but she lived in Seoul uh, and she fell to her death when a banister uh, in her apartment uh, building just gave way. Whoa. And she was one week or two weeks from her, from being married. And so her, there's this, this idea that um, a young person who dies before they're married uh, may have be, be an unfulfilled ghost, um, an, an, an unhappy ghost. And my wife's aunt felt that she was being haunted by her daughter. And so she uh, had a priest uh, do a, I think it was a Buddhist priest, but I'm not sure. So don't quote me on that. Um, do a, um, a ritual marrying her ghost to another young man who had died unmarried. Cool. Um, so, but in our short, our unfortunate victim is asked, is a living person and asked to marry a ghost, uh, which is never a good idea. I like it. That's a very active twist. <laughs> it's, it's fun. It's a fun yeah. Thing. How much in a short, but. And this is a time where I feel like um, horror, mainstream horror, is accepting people from comedy with open arms because I think we're finally seeing the, you know, the dynamic between comedy and horror being, it's a good relationship. So I think having Margaret in there is going to help you guys a lot. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think that there's actually a close connection. My one question before we head into Hellraiser territory is, uh, do you consider yourself to be a horror or a genre writer or do you like to sort of steer clear of labels no i love it i mean i i uh i have done a lot and with my wife we've done uh different genres um the two of us together have done i would say thriller and action um but when we get together our favorite genre is horror oh really um, it's but she I, hates hellraiser how dare no, she no she she does not hate it i know <laughs> okay. definitely not um, okay. she's just not as excited about it as okay well fair no it's um, not fair it's and not. she doesn't have as deep of a knowledge of it and and even mine is actually like compared to most horror fans i have a very shallow knowledge there's of, a lot of hellraiser out there there is a ton and and in fact mm-hmm. i was asked not to read a lot of it um mm, beyond idea. what my you know going in i had knowledge of it <gasps> obviously so you didn't watch hell world I have not watched Hell World. Oh, you got to get to Hell World one of these days. Yeah, just, I actually need gotta. to go and do a lot of uh, back reading and uh, watching of the uh, yeah. Razor saga. Um, and, but, I mean, if you still, like, I don't know what your relationship is with the franchise at this point, but sometimes if I have a, if it's something doesn't end the way I want it to, sometimes I'm not able to revisit certain properties. Right, yeah. No, I, I, I feel that. Um, and, but to answer your question, um, I'm, I'm really... You know, horror has taken an interesting turn since I started in it when it was still kind of a genre uh, when it, that had its best in the 70s. And, and the 90s changed all that. Um, yes. And I think that um, horror is now in its heyday. So, uh, mm-hmm. so I, but, but even before then, I was really excited and proud to be a horror writer. I don't think there's anything 
that you shouldn't be proud of to be associated in being associated with the genre. Um, so we do a lot of stuff, but I know this sounds weird. Um, every, every, I guess everybody has, you know, within whatever they do, everybody has their niches and their talents. I find comedy. We love comedy. We always put comedy in our horror. Um, I find comedy extraordinarily difficult. Um, and I find drama very difficult, just straight drama. I find horror as a writer, the, for me, the easiest genre to write because I love to scare myself. So <laughs> that's my, always my goal. So, you know, I love to write at night and be freaked out by what I'm writing. And if I am, I think I've, I, I'm happy with the work I've done. I love that. Yeah. If I'm ever at a loss for what to write, I just like to think like, what scares me? What am I scared of? What could I be scared of right now? And that yeah. always helps. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it uh -huh. has tropes. I mean, you know, just like every genre, the horror genre has well-worn tropes. Some of them, you know, you always want to try to take a trope and, and, and spin it on its head. Um, but at the same time, audiences expect certain things and you have to deliver on those things. And uh, look, I mean, as much as we might hate a jump scare, it just it works almost every time. So you have to have some. Oh, and it's an art, too. Like, oh, totally. You, to, it's so difficult to make a an effective jump scare work. Yeah, I think especially as a director, like that's what we found making this yeah. short film is that um, suspense was a lot easier than a jump scare. And suspense, I mean, I love, for me, suspense is much more important. It works better, but suspense is easier to create on film, I think, than a jump scare is. It, oh, you think the, yeah. the opposite, but that's what we found. And if you use them effectively, I, there's nothing wrong with them. I saw, I think it's like the 10 year anniversary for Insidious. Uh-huh. And yeah. that movie has one of the most iconic jump scares, I think, of Which all one? time. Uh, there's a scene where Patrick Wilson is talking and all of a sudden oh, Darth yeah, Maul is demon. behind his head. Yeah. Oh, it's great. I mean, I think James Wan may have invented that shot. It's a <laughs> yeah. fantastic shot. James I Wan. I, he truly my hero, my modern hero. And yeah. I like just really as it is. Perfect. Have you seen Dead Silence? No, I haven't seen okay. that. Is that an early movie? It's his second film, I think, after Saw. Huh, um, okay. After the success of Saw, I guess he was just sort of given carte blanche, right. and he made this extremely wacky, like, uh, urban legend horror movie that didn't do well. And so he sort of disappeared for a while after that. But I, I, I am a huge fan of it, and I really recommend it. I have it. to go see that. I have not seen that. Yeah, it's very, like, urban legend horror, um, kind of like Stephen King cool. coastal stuff. Anyways, a big fan. I think the only other James Wan movie I have not seen because we have a personal connection to it and it's painful is the conjuring. <laughs> so uh oh, I can't see that. Not for well, I can I know can we can we just have a brief sure uh just a snippet <laughs> so, of why? Um I don't know, 15 years ago or so, um my wife was in a used bookstore and she found a book called The Demonologists and it was uh, an out of print paperback about Ed and Lorraine Warren. And um oh. she, you know, devoured it, gave it to me. I thought it had to be a movie. Uh, I looked into the rights. The only person who had ever owned their rights was Ridley Scott and the rights had lapsed. And so I called, I called them and um, I uh, worked out an arrangement after, you know, getting their, gaining their trust to try to sell it to Hollywood. And uh, we ended up selling it as a pitch to jo uh, Joel Silver and Warner brothers. Um, and then it had a long and storied, journey uh at that point I, I got to spend a week with ed and lorraine at their house we went on we, i went to an exorcism um i spent some very frightening time in their basement alone oh i still, still think ed left me there alone on purpose to screw with me uh and uh 
and after that, we we so we we didn't get it made that point because our executive at Warner Brothers left to become a an independent producer. Okay. Uh, well, not independent; he had a deal at Warner Brothers, but he couldn't take the project with him. And um, and our executive at Joel Silver's company also left. And so eventually, we had this idea to turn it into a television show. And um, that's when I met Clive Barker okay. because um, we thought, you know, who better to produce this than a live the one of the greatest living yeah, legends the king of horror. horror yeah and we approached him and he was very excited about it so we, and we worked with a pitch worked out a pitch with him we went and sold it to NBC and then NBC got orphaned at NBC by their by their corporate changeover when they got bought by Universal Ugh. and then we were on the brink of getting it made again with back with Joel Silver at, uh and Dark Castle <gasps> when iconic New Line came in and got the rights to their story and that became The Conjuring, and it was just so painful. I'm sorry. Uh, so. <laughs> and with Dark Castle too, I was obsessed with Dark Castle in their heyday. Yeah. It would have been, it would have been great, but uh, I'm sure it was great as it is because it's James Wan, and uh, and uh, I'm very happy for Ed and Lorraine before they passed away. Well, he had passed away, but that Lorraine got to finally benefit from you know, mm-hmm. seeing her stories on the big screen. I guess so, but I'm on your side. I'm sorry. <laughs> that that stings. But it's okay. Everything works out as it should. No, it doesn't. I don't know. Um but it's no insidious. I I can say that as an outsider. Oh yeah? So oh, you, between the two, hands down. Although personally I'm not a big religious horror person. So ah, I'm a Jew I'm like a very casual Jew. So that kind of stuff is a little bit foreign to me. I am too, but for some reason, oh. I love I love the religious horror. I think I've been very polite without jumping straight into the Hellraiser stuff. Sure. So I feel like I feel like I'm allowed now, right? Am I? Can I, can I, I think you've, you've had enough foreplay. Okay, good. Okay, so Development Hell is about my obsession with canceled horror projects. And speaking of which, um, I do understand you were once attached to a Hellraiser reboot? Question mark. Yes, and and I never knew what whether or not to call it a reboot. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I personally looked at it as another story in the Hellraiser canon. I, I don't, you know, I think that at the time the studio considered it a reboot. It was definitely not a remake. Uh-huh. 100% not a remake. Yeah, um, it was a little too far down the line to call very, it Very, very different. I, so at, the rights were owned at the time and may still be owned by Dimension. Uh-huh. And um, they, I believe, were behind a lot of the the, the sequels. Um, and then about five, uh, five or six years ago, I think, um, for, for the last probably 12, 15, 13 years or so, they've been trying to mount a reboot. And uh, they had, there have been a lot of other writers on the project. Uh, I don't even know all the writers who've been on the project. Uh, and they got to a point where... Uh, according to their conversation with my agent uh, and my manager, actually, I think it was my manager who 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 had, was the main contact there. That um, they just needed a fresh start. You know, they 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 weren't sure what direction to go, um, and they they had heard a lot of pitches, they had had a lot of scripts, and they were just kind of throwing it out there to any horror writer who they liked, uh, who might have a a new take on it. And so they, and they specifically did not, they said, they said, it does not have to be based on the original film. Um, we've tried that a few times. And so far we haven't liked what we've gotten enough. Um, and so they just kind of said, 
take the take what you want from the mythology and go from there. And so I kind of read into that that they expressly did wanted to avoid a remake. That doesn't mean they they never said that, but you kind of have to read between the lines sometimes, and that's kind of what I got out of it. To sort of try to go down the recalibration route. That's what they called the last Halloween or recalibration. Right. Yeah. Well, it was before yeah. they decided to like reboot movies five years after the original movie. Oh, I know. It's very confusing. Um, I'm grateful as a horror fan, but um, I would love a subtitle on these on these just for for fun. Unlike the new Scream movie, which is called Scream, I think. I knew it. I knew <laughs> yeah. it was going to be after Halloween. I knew Black Christmas. There's three movies yeah. called Black Christmas. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and I've been involved with a lot of remake slash reboots, you know, of horror movies. And so this is this is a very personal thing, and everyone's going to feel differently about it. Um, but uh, you know, as a writer, you're walking into dangerous territory when you are in. It's more dangerous for the director, for sure. But um, you're walking into dangerous territory when you are remaking something that is a cult classic, beloved by so many people. And, um, and I've, I've had to think twice about certain projects. So, um, and, and I had a very specific feeling about the Hellraiser project that is probably going to make me hated um, by a lot of people, Hellraiser fans, and also probably make a lot of people who hear this be very thankful that my movie never got made. But I think the best way to explain it is if you don't mind indulging me to start with a, a little backstory. So it was probably about 20, this story probably goes back to probably 2010. Around 2010, I think I was approached uh, to come up with a take on a project that is probably, in my mind, one of the greatest pieces of literature of all time, which is the uh, the Sandman series. Game? Yeah. Oh, I'm a fan. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's had its huge influence on me. I think it's stunning from start to finish. And so I, when I heard, you know, they, they'd had this, this project's been at Warner Brothers forever as a feature film, way before it's now back in Neil Gaiman's hands um, as a television show series, thank goodness. But back at the to- time, they, they'd been looking for a take. It had been written by an Academy Award winning, they had a draft by an Academy Award winning writer that people loved around town. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but I, I didn't love it. it. It wasn't the Sandman to me. I was written beautifully, but it, for me, it wasn't didn't capture the Sandman. I went in and I talked to them, and kind of the first thing they said was, we, need, we want this to be a superhero movie. And I immediately started shrinking in my chair because I just, uh, Sandman's not a superhero, you know, at least not in any kind of traditional sense. But no, what no, really... No the meeting really went downhill when they started talking about how Sandman had to be very human and had to be very relatable and had to be uh, very heroic right from the start of the story. And to me, that's, this is the entire point of Sandman. Um, he's, he's not human. He's not relatable for most of the series and he's cold and he has trouble relating to humans and he has, you know, some of it comes from pain in his past, but he's incredibly cold to the, his, his great love of his life. Um, and it takes a whole series for him to get to the point where maybe there's a spark of understanding of, you know, of the heart of humanity's heart. And, um, 
All of that is to say, I walked away from that meeting and called my agent and said, I can't, I, I have no interest in this. I cannot be involved in this because I could just, I would destroy Sandman. So, you know, I, and I'm, yeah, thank goodness that it's back in his hands because he'll, he'll, he'll do wonders with it. But, um, yes. but the point of that story is that that's not the way I felt about Hellraiser. Okay. <laughs> um, Good. So Hellraiser, I love, first of all, I love, um, I love the, the story that, that it comes from. I'm a huge Clive Barker fan. Like Clive Barker, Peter Straub, and Stephen King um, are, you know, heroes of mine and all for very different reasons. Um, and Clive Barker, um, his, you know, his, his works are tremendous. And I, I think um, even when he steps a little bit aside from horror, uh, I think The Great and Secret Show is my favorite Clive Barker novel. Um, and so I was, you know, I'm such a, I'm such a, a worshiper of his that I thought, um, this, it could be really dangerous, but I don't necessarily feel that way about his original Hellraiser movie. Um, there's stuff in it that I love and it's horrifying and it's disturbing, but for me, it never worked a hundred percent as a film. And part of it is because, you know, I'm, I'm a little basic. Um, when it comes to my horror movies, I don't need to have someone to identify with. I don't need to have someone who's likable. Mm -hmm. But I want to understand a character like all three, like three of the leads of the movie. I just like they're, you know, so unpleasant. Um, and the, the, the daughter is mildly interesting to me, but I never really cared that much about her. To me, the hero of the movie was uh, Pinhead. Yeah. And we, and it was there for five minutes. Yeah, exactly. And that's who I wanted to know more about. And the Cenobites, I wanted to know more about the Cenobites. Yeah. And you're not alone. That's, I think that's where the fans wanted to, to sure, dig I mean, into as well. The, you know, truly with the great horror movies, so many of the great horror movies are all about the, the villain or the antagonist, right? Um, that's who we care about or remember the most. Um, so I, I, I didn't feel like, I mean, yes, I feel like I felt like it could be worrisome and difficult to, to remake something, uh, that was, um, that was so beloved, but at the same time, the, the, there's so many pieces of that saga that you could just fit in anywhere and just be another part of the Hellraiser canon. And I, I wouldn't say I was trying to remake it. I was just trying to tell a new story within the world, you know? Um, so I was okay, totally starting fresh. Um, and that also meant considering changing or rewriting the story of who Pinhead is. Um, and, and we did that. So, um, again, I knew it could get me in like big trouble and people would probably hate me for it. Um, but it was kind of fun to re reimagine that. And at the time I didn't actually know that part of the canon also had a backstory for Pinhead that he was a human at one point, which is what we did as well. Um, our human version, our version was a lot more famous than the human he is in, uh, in that, in that, uh, iteration. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, we came at it. We also reinvented the, uh, the, the, um, I know there's I, the, the box. I know there's like, I'm trying to remember the two configuration names. Yeah. Okay. It's long and don't worry about it. I, I saw it today. I, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. I know there are two of them. Lament? Lament configuration? Uh, yeah. The, the lament configuration. Well, but then there's it. also the name of the, there's one that's named after a person and I can't remember. Oh, okay. I, I apologize to all of the, the Hellraiser. Fans. They are yelling at us right now. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, so we came up with a whole backstory for that and a whole uh, a new mythology for that as well. But this, frankly, the story of, I mean, how it happened 
is probably more entertaining than the script or the story itself. Okay. Yeah, I want to know. Um, it's not so much the how, but like the, some of the circumstances surrounding it. The uh, founder of Dimension is um, Bob Weinstein, um, brother of Harvey Weinstein. Um, I think that Harvey might be one of the founders of Dimension too, but I'm not sure how separate Miramax and Dimension were. Dimension was, you know, is the genre arm mm-hmm. of the studio. And this was obviously way before uh, it came out what Harvey Weinstein has been involved in for all these years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been, there are all these stories that people in Hollywood knew this stuff, but I've never been really like a player in Hollywood. So I don't hear, I don't hear any gossip or anything. Um, I had never really knew much about Bob either, except that he was notoriously brutally honest uh, and just be prepared. Everyone just told me to like be prepared. So it was really interesting because I, I and the, the executives on the film, the Dimension executives are brilliant guys. Like I, they were right from the start. They're brilliant story people. I really loved working with them every step of the way. And then Bob would come in and, you know, the first time I met him, he heard the pitch and I had no idea what he would think. And he goes, he said, why have I, this is brilliant. It's like a love story. It's so beautiful. It's never what I, it's not what I expected out of Hellraiser, which was great. And he said, now we got to try to go try to find a director who wants to make it. And this was before we had made a deal for me to write it. So, um, you know, I knew that that potentially meant more work for me. And if we didn't find a director, who knows if they'd actually make the deal. And I just didn't, I mean, you know, I just didn't know what was going to happen. So, um, so they started making these meetings to pitch the idea to get a director on board who would then uh, develop the movie with me as the writer. Um, so the first person we went to was um, Andy Muschietti um, and, um, and, and, and Barbara, his sister as well as the producer. Um, and this was before it came out. Yeah. Um, it was after mama, which I, oh, okay. So mama had happened. Mama had come out, which I, and I, you know, I thought it was a totally horrifying film. Um, and, and so that was, it was, you know, I loved the idea of potentially being able to work with them and they were not, they were overseas at the time. So we pitched it to them on Skype. Um, and, uh, they passed, um, I didn't have much to say about it. So I don't know if they liked anything about it, <laughs> they, but it was really, it was fun meeting them. And, um, and wow. then after that, we, uh, Bob set up the next meeting, um, with a director he had worked with, uh, early on in this director's career. And I don't think it went that well from what I had heard the first time they worked together. Uh, and so I was wondering why they, they were going to do it again, but it was uh-huh. because they loved this director. And when they revealed that the director was Guillermo del Toro, oh, stop. Uh, I was also <laughs> very excited to go pitch it because uh, amongst my film heroes, uh, he's at, you know, almost the, He's in the very tiny, small top group at the yeah. very, very top. Um, of course, um, same. Yeah, I'm just uh, the idea of meeting him. I didn't care what he thought of the movie. I just wanted to meet him. <laughs> yeah, so we went to we went to pitch to him, and this was could it be for him to direct or produce? Because obviously he's, I mean, he produces movies that are as good as the movies he directs. I, I still oh, think yeah. Orphanage, Orphanage. Is a decade, just it, terrifying, um, terrifying movie, and beautiful. Like well, he's so always, beautiful. it's always beautiful. They're always so beautiful. Devil's Backbone was just. Chef's kiss. Yeah, and the and the and the um, emotionally, it's uh, it's so engaging. That I, I I think I cried like the end of the, the first three times I watched Orphanage. Um, it's just such a, a beautiful story. It's so, scary. It's it's really scary. Oh, it's great. It's beautiful. It's so well. It's so well directed. Bayona is amazing too. So, mm-hmm. um, so we went to 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 meet him, and it was it was like such a, it was like a fanboy's dream because um, we went to his office at 
Warner Brothers, he was he he had, he's behind him uh, during the pitch was the um, his editing bay where he was working on um, Pacific Rim, uh, which was totally exciting. Uh, yeah. I knew that I you know I knew what it was about, but uh, and I was thrilled. I was so excited to see it. And I could see you know some of the uh, the kaiju on the screen behind him. Oh my <laughs> god! Um, and. So we pitched it to him and he gave awesome notes. Okay. Um, he talked about how much he loved so much of it. And then he had some problems with parts of it. Um, but it, And at the end, um, he didn't say what if he was going to get involved or not. Um, but he gave really great notes. And, um, and at the end of the meeting, the executives who he knew and, you know, Bob Weinstein, he'd worked with closely before. They kind of waved goodbye or shook his hand. And he pulled me into this bear hug, which was a total shock to me. And then he kind of whispered, good luck. Oh, no. <laughs> and he knew. I didn't know if he meant good luck because, you know, finding a director or good luck with writing the script or good luck working in this situation. I uh-huh. had no idea. Um, it was uh-huh. kind of chilling, uh-huh. um, reinfor- reassuring at the same time. Um, but it's, it will always be one of my favorite Hollywood moments uh, is uh, uh, being hugged by Guillermo del Toro and told good luck. So and that is extremely iconic. And obviously I hope to have that opportunity again sometime in the future. I hope that you do too. I have been dying to do an episode about him for a while. He did. He was, so he, he started a label at Disney called Disney double dare you. where He was going to do a series of like really spooky kid movies yeah. and the whole label just fell apart. Cause I guess he had other things going on, but I'm really yeah. desperate to get that episode up one day. Oh, that's a great idea. And his haunted mansion remake would have been just something uh, else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, um, as soon as we found out, so the, you know, the the tale took a turn because as soon as we found out he was passing, he he did not want to get involved with it. Um, then Bob turned on me. Um, his, his, I'm not. I mean, he. I'm not saying he was. Uh, it was just because of that or anything, but you know, he 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 wasn't as enamored of me at that point. Um, and um, you know, like I, from his brutal honesty, his drawer of brutal honesty. Um, he told me at the uh, after as soon as he found out, you know, I read that demonologist script of yours last night. I didn't think so much of it. So oh my um, things started to get worrisome, and this was before uh-huh. we had made a deal. Um, and then, so like the the talk about it and whether or not there was going to be a deal and whether or not I was going to write the script went on for mu- months, must have been months. Um, and at the very end of it, um, we got a call saying that they wanted to go ahead with it. And, um, they were closing a deal and, um, we were going to be set to go. And so I, you know, the, the, they, the, a friend of mine, another writer named Ryan Rowe has said in the past that the, the best day of a project is the day you get the job and it's downhill from there. Uh, and, uh, mine went downhill really fast, uh, because a week after I got the job and started working on the script, I re- I read in Deadline that I was going to be competing against another writer, which is something that they hadn't told me. And when I read who my name wasn't mentioned, but this writer's name was, and I was a little bit horrified to find out that it was Clive Barker. No, I can't. I, <laughs> That's, I not, That's not correct. <laughs> so apparently. Clive had been very interested in remounting the uh, a real, I think a a, a a true remake. I don't know how okay. re, you know close to sure. the but sure. a, a remake. And um, 
And he had been talking to them at the same time they were talking to me, which is probably one of the reasons that this was um, going on. But I don't know if he knew, but I assume he knew about me. We had already worked together on the demonologist. Uh Um, I, I loved working with him. He's an amazing, obviously brilliant, but also warm and wonderful person. Another um, queer icon, just to uh, absolutely. And if yeah. I ever had to, and you know, I, when I, uh, you know, another one of the great moments in my career was going to get getting to go to his house, and um, he gave me a tour of his art. You know, he had been he had a, <sighs> uh, a show upcoming, and I got to you know see all of his beautiful art up close while he was still working on some of it, and it was amazing. Um, was wild. So working with him was was. Uh, I, I guess I never really felt like there was any worry for him competing against me because not only is he clive barker but he created yeah it's his it's his franchise that's shit that's crappy for everyone in a way it was was, yeah it was it was and (laughs) uh, so i just it kind of was a cloud hanging over my head while i wrote it i figured this isn't going to go anywhere because the great clive barker is going to write something that's going to be stunning and that'll be the end of that but they you know these these kind of what they call them sweepstakes um, are more and more common in uh, Hollywood when you have a high profile project and the studio will hire multiple people to work on it at the same time. Uh, I under I went I had had the same situation with the Grudge sequel. Uh, I was working on it, and in that case, I was the kind of I was also the interloper because while I was working on it, um, Stephen Susco, who wrote the original Grudge, was working on a draft as well. Oh, um, so uh, so I'd already been in that situation. Once. It was such a big success. Why wouldn't they just hand it over? To him. I don't know. I don't really, I mean, I don't really know what happened in that situation. Um, but in the end, um, he, they made his movie. So uh, I don't, it was weird. I don't understand quite why they went to another writer. Can I and, ask like a, like a technical question? When they do that, are you still getting paid either way? Yeah. 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 Okay. You, you, um, you're not writing it unless until you close the deal basically. So, um, so yeah, they're paying, they're paying multiple writers at the same time. Um, that's frightening rights you know they're paying you based on what your own personal rate is um that's so, not how you nurture an artist hollywood it's hollywood yeah oh there's no, no there's no nurturing in hollywood well we gotta start <laughs> we gotta put women in charge enough enough of this yes absolutely but there is that is by the way that's not true that's mostly true of writers it's not as true of directors okay um, writers are considered the most replaceable um, artist in Hollywood. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that most executives or not most executives, many executives and many producers are either frustrated writers or feel that they can write. And so they have a kind of a le- less respect for the writer mm-hmm. because they feel like anyone can write, but as having directed and written now, uh, I would have to say that writing is much harder than directing. I um, would agree. It's it's much more mysterious, right? It's intangible. And... Yeah, I mean, and so did you write your project as well? I did, yes. yes. So, yeah, so you, you know that when, once you get to the directing stage, you have a writer's vision to work with. Oh, yeah. Uh, and even when it's your own, but when, when you're... It can be bad. You can be too precious, but yes, sure, at least absolutely. you know your, your own roadmap. But at least what you're doing is you're, you're creating, you're not creating from nothing. You're mm-hmm. creating from I, something that's already existing. I agree. Yeah, so there's a ton of, you know, there's just not much respect. I can't it. believe they were pitting you against Clive Barker. <laughs> I was I was researching this and I noticed um that you it, it, the article that I was reading said that you and Clive Barker 
were sort of working together on the reboot. I didn't realize that this is actually how not. it worked out. <laughs> not which, at all. Which would have been amazing, I'm guessing. Oh, for me, yeah. For him, not so much. But I'm sure he would have liked <laughs> it. Why um, not? Ending to this story is that um, while the executives at least told me that they really liked my draft, um, mine didn't get made and Clive's didn't make, get made either, which for me was really sad because yeah. I would have much rather been beaten out by Clive than than beaten out by nothing. Yeah. <laughs> in the end what happened actually i don't know if i agree with that <laughs> to be honest um do you know what happened why they didn't end up making a film you know there's it's when it comes down to it the head of the studio has to really connect with the material and um i just don't think bob loved the scripts that he got along the way whether they were mine or other people's um yes. you know he has to he has to he has to finance it it's so, crazy because they remade every every single property. I mean, we're going to talk about Let's Scare Jessica to Death, but like they went through everything except for Hellraiser until now, maybe. Yeah, well, they, you know, I mean, they try to remake everything um, and a lot of them get stuck in development hell. Um, there's their, there's your plug, uh, which is by, by one year for Hollywood, I was development hell. I came as a a devil with my own scripts on the end of a pitchfork. That's so I hilarious. Really the name of your, uh, your podcast. <laughs> oh, I, lo- I love that. And I am tr- like authentically obsessed with these lost movies. I don't know why. There's just something about this like graveyard of horror movies that didn't get made that I'm like that fascinated by. a nice by. turn of phrase. <laughs> yeah. And it's true. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, that's what amazes me is how many bad horror movies have been made. Yeah. When there are probably a lot of really good scripts that haven't been made. It's frightening as a you know an emerging filmmaker to think of it on those levels, to, you know how and why films actually get made. And it has yeah, little I mean, to do with. the good news is, as a writer, since you wrote your project as well, that you do get paid as a writer even when your project doesn't get made. I mean, you get you only get paid half of what you would, or less than half if it if it got made. Um, but it being a writer in Hollywood is a little bit like being a um, on a baseball team but not being in the starting nine. Um, so you're, you know, you can, you, you get paid well, you know, there's no, there's, it's not as good as it used to be, but you, you can't complain about the pay. Um, you can complain about the security because you just never know where your next job is coming from. But like a baseball team, you may not make it to the show. You may be sitting on the bench a lot of time. You're doing hard work. You're practicing every day. You know, in this case, practicing is you're actually writing and it's not practicing, but you're actually getting paid for it. But you're getting paid to show up every day. You're getting paid to do your work, but you don't actually get to, you know, be on uh, on the field uh, during the game and be on national television. And so uh, a lot of writers make a, a decent living for a certain amount of time not getting things made. Uh, eventually you have to. and well, some of these movies haven't gotten made. I know I was on a TV show and I've had a bunch of episodes made. And, and I've also been the, the cleanup writer on a couple of projects um, that have been made. So I didn't get credit, but, uh, but I was the one who brought it, you know, the last, the last mm-hmm. mile to the screen. Um, but so it's, it's, not, it's not awful when a project doesn't get made. It's sad, but it's just part of the business. Don't worry that these projects don't get made because selling it is much harder than getting it made. <laughs> so yeah. if you sell it, then and then you know, then and you have good enough ideas and good enough writing to um, to entice people, then um, then you're you're halfway there. We did this short with the intention, like you, of making a feature, and we went on this like world tour of festivals trying to get a deal to get a feature made. 
And it wasn't until the very, very, very last festival in Mexico that something actually happened. So I, you just never know. Oh, that's great. So where is that project? I don't know if I'm allowed to to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but I'll, it's I'll a, have to follow, keep following your social media to find. Yeah, yes, please do. Um, yeah, that's yeah. We just handed in our third draft. Awesome. Yeah, we just the other day, which is uh, it's nice, but it's a little so sad because you know the power is completely out of your hands now. Now you yes. have to wait. No, it's very true, and there's a couple of routes to go, and and I know that's one of them. Um, you know, the other route is if you have representation in Hollywood, is to get the short into the hands of producers and buyers who might be interested before you, before or while you're doing the festival circuit. Um, I don't know for sure if this is the right story, but um, one of my favorite horror shorts in a long time is Baghead. And um, Baghead made the, the festival circuit, won a ton of awards at horror festivals. And only at the very end, like yours, did they also get, um, to finally get a, a, a feature deal. Oh, it's um, chilling. It's but chilling. others like won't even take the festival. Like uh, there's a, um, uh, a, a short that just sold at South by Southwest, oh. a horror short uh, by Julian Terry, uh, who has sold three now uh, shorts. And he has never gone the festival route for that. Um, he's always had his agents sell them directly to interested producers and studios. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like the dream, but we were just young and emerging and we had no contacts. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Now we do. <laughs> so. Yeah. And then, and you're and probably the next time out, you may go directly to, uh, to studios, but then you don't get to do the festival circuit, which is so much fun. So that's why it was the most fun I've ever had. It was the most fun in my life. I cannot wait to do it again. Um, we were going to go. Did you guys apply to Chattanooga? Yes. I can't wait to find out. Cause I really want to get, oh, in. I hope you get in. It was the biggest heartbreak of my life is that we got in and that was like the first big, uh, like had that's to go fun. online because yeah. of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, and so I'm worried that some of these, are going to be even if they're open, they're going to be like half. half of well, that's Panic Fest. It does seem like it is happening. Yeah, it is, and but there, it's it's um it's a um, hybrid. So they're cool. I think they are keeping it somewhat limited in terms of in person, but they are having in person uh, events. Uh, yeah, I mean Kansas City's <laughs> the rules are probably not exactly the safest of all, <laughs> yeah. of all the cities. So and Chattanooga probably won't be either. No, 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 like in Tennessee, probably. I mean, I, I bet you Tennessee is open for business. But, yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Have you? Have you? I don't know. I'm asking this, but have you had your your vaccine yet? Uh, Saturday. I get my shot this coming Shut Saturday. Shut up! I get mine on Monday. Ah, uh, congratulations! Congrats to you too. <laughs> and your family? Are they also? My wife got vaccinated today. Actually. Oh my we god! Split it up so that if one of us got really sick, or you know, we would be able to take care of each other. That's a um, frightening thing to have to decide. Um, yeah, well, you know, in Cal- and in California, we didn't think we were going to have the opportunity until June because you know we're not we're not sixty five or or older. <laughs> yes, um, me and, and, But they finally like opened it up to everybody this month. Oh, uh, they did. So we got lucky. Wow. I, see, I, I'm lucky because I have asthma. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> now you're in Canada. I am. I'm in Toronto. I hear I my 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 aunt is in Toronto and and I she just got her shot. I heard for a while there were like no one knew what the plans were. It's not good. It's really you'd think that we'd be better than we're sure. doing right now, but yeah. I you know it's probably a, it's a, it's probably a, a handful of coordination issues, you know. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not in charge. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not easy, I'm sure. Did you have a title? Did you have like a, a subtitle in mind for your for your Hellraiser film? 
No, it was just, I mean, you know, I usually leave that to like the marketing people. Oh, so really? This oh. was just Hellraiser. And um, there, it had nothing to do story-wise with the first one at Smart. all. Very no. good idea. That's the way to go, I think. It just didn't like the people in the first one. So Yeah, and if you're not extremely passionate about it, like we're going to know. We're going to smell that on you. Yeah, and look, I have to admit that mine was kind of mainstream in its storytelling. Um, and even like I like I, I really appreciate movies that have a device. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not necessary, but I just for me, it's it, it's a great way in. I mean, the ring is like, you know, one of the great devices in a horror movie of all time. So this so mine had a device to get us into the story. The one area where I wanted to push boundaries was in the actual visions of the horror and how. You know, I, 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 I'm not a, like the biggest gore fan in the world, but I think the well-placed gore, uh, well-placed shocking bit of gore is, you know, almost required for a horror movie and is incredibly powerful. So, um, so I tried to keep it light you know, not, not have a lot of it, but when I had it, I wanted it to be, you know, really striking. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, because it's only effective if you're using it sparingly, because then otherwise you get bored by it. Yeah, and the other thing is, and you may not connect to this as much because of the religious horror thing, but I think that one of the things that is most hor- horrific in religious horror films is, and is m- most easy for audiences to, to to call up their mo- like their deepest, most existential fears, um, is um, the idea of hell. You know, and the idea of eternal damnation. And even if you don't believe in it, the idea that there might be something like that is just terrifying. You know, I mean, I I can't really think of much more terrifying than death isn't the end. You know, yes, yes. If it's worse after death, you know, how how horrible. So that's um. (laughs) So we wanted to play with that too, and I felt like that is something that at least the first Hellraiser film um, didn't get into a lot. Um, except of course, you know, your main character is obviously dead, um, <laughs> or one of the main characters is dead and trying to, you know, and it, it's in, in a sense, come back, mm-hmm. but you don't really get the sense of hell a lot, except for my favorite sequence in the movie where, um, I can't remember the character's name anymore, but where the daughter is in the hospital and she, um, uh, that the, the wall opens up and she ends up in that kind of, you know, other world, uh-huh. um, which may be hell, may not be hell. Um, but that's, so I wanted to spend a little bit more time really talking about the concept of hell and thinking about that and that being part of the movie. Um, so, um, I think I was thinking as much Hellraiser, I was thinking Jacob's Ladder. I don't know how, how I feel personally about the ending, but I will tell you that I, I'm always too scared to revisit it. So that's got to <laughs> say something about it. Yeah. I mean, people have very mixed feelings about it. Um, yes, it's for me, polarizing. yeah, it really works for me because I'm not. I love that that bit of hope at the end of a horror movie, mm-hmm. um, which is why when I saw Seven originally, I was so pissed off. Um, and now I've come to believe that that's the very best ending and it's brilliant. But when I saw it the first time, that nihilistic ending pissed me off so much, I didn't want to have anything. Yeah, I saw that way too young. No, I love that you talked about the uh, the concept of eternity, because even though I'm not religious at all, it is probably what scares me the most. You know, once I die, just, that's, just let me rest, you know? <laughs> right. Let that be it, please. I ca- if you're willing, would you be able to give us like a little bit more of like a plot yeah, outline sure. of what your story was? 
yeah, not unlike a device like the Ring. Um, the um, the my my version had a device that is viral in a sense, um, a horror that is passed on from one owner to the next. And um, the box just seemed like a perfect device. I mean, it's already a device. Mm -hmm. So um, instead of the box simply being a portal, which I I guess is kind of a way to look at it um, in the original Hellraiser, um, I made the box a a deal with the devil in a a sense. Um, So the, the, the basic idea of it was that the box can give you something you desperately want. Once you make that deal and you're not, it's not like you make a deal, like you visibly know you're, or you, you, you know, you talk the deal out or you, 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 you voice what you want or anything like that. It's just that the box knows. And, um, once you accept that the box takes a tiny slice of you, if you know, while it's in your hands and you know, take your blood, uh, drips into the box as in the original and the, the countdown essentially begins, the deal begins. And there, so there are six sides to the, to the box. Um, and, uh, there are six things that you love dearly in your life that you will start to lose one by one. Okay, cool. Until the very last thing, which is the thing you find most precious. Um, and you have to solve the puzzle because it's a puzzle box, um, before and and it's not just a like a literal like a Rubik's cube where you have to figure out how to solve mm-hmm. it physically, but you have to figure out what's going on and solve it in some way if you uh, to stop the uh, the carnage from happening. And most people who have played with the box realize as these they start losing their these things in their lives. This is backstory. Most people have realized that you know they're going to lose the thing most dear to them soon. Their their children, their family, something. And they, most of them have committed suicide before they got to the end in hopes that that's the solution, uh-huh. that that stops the box from taking the thing they love the most. Um, and our hero is an estranged, is estranged from her family. She had a you know, really difficult childhood. Her older brothers escaped the abuse of the family um, and she was left behind. And her older brother dies and she finds out he committed suicide, which makes very little sense to her because of who he is and was. And she takes the box and unbeknownst to her, she starts the ball rolling once again with herself. Um, and she's adopted her niece, you know, the, who she barely knows, um, who's the daughter of the brother who died. And that, that girl was, she eventually realizes that that girl was the last side of the puzzle box that, you know, she was going to die. And that's why the, um, her brother committed suicide. And it's going to be her, her last piece too, because she falls in love with this child over the course of the story. Okay. Um, but meanwhile, so that's the device. But meanwhile, we're trying to figure out who Hellraiser, who Pinhead is. And he shows up throughout the movie. Um, and and, and um, unlike in the original, you actually get to know him a little bit. She talks to him. He plays a, a, a strong role in this. And um, he's kind of behind all of this um, and, the, and, and takes some delight in the torture that, that these people go through. Um, but at the, um, she's going to, she discovers over the course of the story who he is, what his story is, and what the story of the box is. And just as a, a little bit of mythology to tell you about the box, um, there is a there are a couple of biblical stories that are woven into this. And um, some people consider um, King Solomon, um, the uh, the first king of uh, the second king of Israel, as the um, 
the first exorcist because he had, there's this book called The Lesser Key of Solomon. Uh, and it talks about the demons that Solomon trapped. And he trapped them in this vessel that's known as Solomon's vessel, but has is occasionally known in translations as Solomon's box. Okay. So well, here the we idea go. is that this is the original Solomon's box, the original um, tool that was used to trap demons. And it's okay, cool. And in relation to Pandora or no? In a way. Yeah. And there may be some connection to the fact that, you know, there may be, I wouldn't be surprised at all if those myths are, you know, through. Yes. Who knows? Legend were, yeah. And, and um, verbal were, were, were somehow connected. So, so this is, that's the little bit of the backstory. The other reveal of the movie is something I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to reveal now because I still want to use it someday. (laughs) All right. That's fair. Sad, but fair. But that's who, uh, who actually Pinhead is. Cool. And now I'm, now I'm, now I'm. We should talk about it offline. All right. That's a deal. (laughs) It kind of is, I don't know, obviously I'm just hearing what you're saying, but it's giving me kind of drag me to hell vibes where, you know, the pace is just instilled from the get go. Yeah, I mean, and I love Drag Me to Hell, and, and you know, Sam Raimi's, a, you know, a, a god as well. Um, I think the tone was much more serious than Drag Me to Hell. Yes, because he's I, very few people can pull off that tone. No one but him. Um, but yeah, there, there's a little bit of that. Um, you know, you're doomed from the start. Yeah, race against the clock. Yeah, absolutely. And then again, that's a ticking clock device which works mm-hmm. so well. In like the ring, of course. Form. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm tense and stressed just thinking about it. So that's <laughs> that's excellent. That's my that's my version that will never see the light of day. Well, that's sad. I would love to see it, but I'm also very grateful that I've managed to get you on here, and we're getting everyone the next best thing, which is sort of your retelling of it. <laughs> well, maybe the yeah, the TV show will be the next best thing. Yeah. Well, the TV show, if it happens, it looks like it really is. They, they've got what's his face on board. Um, is it David Goyer? Yeah, no, David Gordon Green. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think, Am I, I think Goyer was involved at one point, too. I, he's involved with so many horror projects in Hollywood. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, he, no, I, I think you're right. I think that they're well along the way. I mean, TV is one way, has been, a, and streaming has been a great way to kind of rescue a lot of these um, amazing franchises. Yes, um, that are too difficult to do in an hour and a half. Did yeah. you see the dark tower? <laughs> I'm throwing a shit on anything, but I have not. Uh, I mean, yeah. 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 It, it's, it's just not an hour and a half, you know? Uh, and that's, you know, the problem is that it's, um it's so easy to make a bad, I'm not talking about dark tower cause I haven't seen it and I don't want to, I'm not going to bad mouth it, but um, it's so easy to make a bad horror movie um, and so hard to make a good one. But when you have, when you have great writers in television um, who have the, freedom to take the story and spread it out over a long, you know, a nice long period of time, get to know the characters. Um, it's just, I, I just think your, your odds of making something good are much higher. Yes, I agree. I really Speaking hope. Of which mm-hmm. um, I I'm just, it's, it's my, it's my, um, my campaign right now to, uh, to make everyone who is not aware of it, aware of a really cool horror TV show on Netflix from Korea uh, called Sweet Home. And if you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. It's so much fun. Can you like, give us a log line? Well, it, it, yeah, but it doesn't sound very original because it sounds like okay. so much stuff that we've seen recently. The title, I'm, I'm scared already. <laughs> um, in some ways, it's um, uh, very much a zombie kind of story, but in uh, it's about a, um, but they, there's a fun twist on it, but it's about a kind of a, and I wouldn't say a slum, but a, a, a apartment building in Korea that is, 
you know, not where the denizens are not very um, successful or wealthy and um, an emergency happens and we don't really know what it is, but um, people start turning into monsters in the outside world um, and even potentially in the building. And the problem is it's, it, it is, it might be viral, but we don't know how. So anyone can turn at any moment. Um, and it's just, the monsters are fun. The effects are not amazing. Um, but, um, after a couple episodes, you just start to love these characters so much. Um, and the action is fantastic and the horror is fun. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's, I know there's a second season already planned. Um, so you should go check it out. It's really, I, I promise I will. By the way, based on a web comic, um, or a web or webisodes, that's apparently becoming really huge in Korea as well. Cool. Well, any way to tell a story, I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah, absolutely. Especially a scary story. Yeah. That's all that really interests me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, listen, I feel like I've taken up enough of your time. Oh, sure. It was so much fun. And I, like I said, we don't, I don't usually get to, to talk about this stuff. So, of course. Fun, but also I always love a good conversation with a fellow horror nerd. Me too. Literally anytime. If someone's a horror person, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that's the person I'm sticking with tonight. All right. And that's that's why these festivals like we did our last our last short was a comedy and you know, comedy people I've worked with them all my life. They're, they're fine, you know. But horror people, horror people are special. They're way better. I I'm a, I'm surrounded by comedy people too. They're pretentious and get them out of here. No way. They're also a, a generally a pretty unhappy group. Uh, oh, they are wrecked. Order our comedy writers are writing from places of pain. Yeah, yeah. These are not. These are these people are not coping, and they are on drugs. And horror writers are getting it all out on the page. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're and we're like sober, yeah. and we're just like you know we have our DVD collection, and we're fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, yeah well thank you again uh, maybe we will talk again one day who knows well and i'm also gonna is there a way to see your short i know i'm, you I'm gonna send it to you I th- i'm thrilled that you asked oh yeah i'm dying to see it Don't we'll have, a, we'll it have a screening at the uh the tenenbaum park household today. oh my god yes <laughs> i love that well have an amazing night and thank you again teddy oh, thanks for having me i can't wait to hear the episode and all of your other episodes as well we'll, we'll talk to you soon teddy all right good talking to you josh take care bye for now all right bye-bye you can also follow us online on basically any social media platform at devil hell pod that's d-e-v-e-l hell pod and you should like and comment and just engage with us because we are bored uh so that's it for this week Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and write a review because it really helps us get seen in this vast, endless hell of horror movie podcasts. See ya. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.